0: welcome this morning. Let's give these guys a hand. That was great. If you have a Bible, open with me this morning to the book of 1 Timothy. Towards the end of the scriptures, the book of 1 Timothy. We entered into the study on Paul's letter to uh, young Timothy, this young pastor, uh, a few weeks ago, First Timothy is, is one of the three books included in this collection of books known as the pastoral epistles. So those books are 1 uh, Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And these, these pastoral epistles are, are letters written by Paul uh, to two young pastors who were ministering to these two new churches in two hard cities. And the pastoral epistles are among... Sorry, guys. These these pastoral epistles are among uh, the last books that Paul uh, wrote, and, and 2 Timothy was likely written just before Paul was uh, beheaded uh, in Rome under the Emperor Nero, and so all of these books are are charged for Paul with this, uh, knowing that this could be the, the last message he gives to these young pastors. And so all three of these books focus on what what life and what ministry and what worship should look like in the local church, in and among the people of God. And, and Paul states his, his purpose so clearly in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, it says in 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 and 15, and we'll get to this in a couple of weeks. He says, I, I hope to come to you soon. So again, he's, he's there in prison. He's saying, I'm, I'm hoping to come to you soon, but I'm writing you these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to conduct themselves, how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, so Paul's writing very, very uh, clearly. He's saying, "I want you to know how to behave in this church, in God's family, in God's household." This is really the point of the pastorals in general, but uh, First Timothy in particular. How to live as God's people in community? How to be essentially the family of God, especially within the community of of this, of this local gathering of worshiping believers. So let me read 1 Timothy 2 for us. I'll pray and then we'll work through it together. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 2. He says, first of all, then, I I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high, high positions that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. He says this is good and this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. He says there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself up as a ransom for all which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling you the truth. I'm not lying here, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. And so he says here in verse 8, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or without quarreling. Likewise, too, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, adorn themselves with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. God, we pray this morning that you would speak to us. God, we pray that you would draw us into your word. God, that your spirit would lead us in the truth. God, that we would hear from you. God, we confess this morning, these are uh, many of these very confusing words, maybe for for, for some here, very troubling words. God, I pray that you would help us make sense of it, and that we would approach your word, God, that we would approach you, that we would approach uh, one another with deep humility, fixing our eyes on Christ. God, be with us this morning. We pray all things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, of course, even as you're reading this passage or as you're hearing it read, um, there's there's so much going on here in these 15 verses. Thank you so much, Marcus, for giving me this passage. Yeah, this is this is the real home run. This is the one you hope you get, right? Um, and, and some of these some of these verses are um, notoriously complex biblical landmines. And they're not, they're not easy to really wade through. We're going to do our best. Here's my best effort to pull out a few key themes. And let me just say uh, one, one quick word here, um, especially specifically about uh, verse 15, um, where, where Paul says there, and yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to get to that verse this morning. There's really so much there, but I want to just open it up as a way of invitation that I'm I'm happy to engage that verse uh, with you if you want. So feel free to email me, follow up with me. There's a lot there. You can do just one sermon on that particular verse. I'm happy to talk about that with you, but I'm going to tee you up right now. We're not going to get there. We're not going to get to verse 15. So we're going to do our best to cover the rest, but we're not going to hit verse 15. So, so here we go. Let me pull out a few key themes for us from these, uh, these 14 or so verses. If you're, if you're taking notes, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do my best to get these three points across. Here's number one, that, that worship is marked by humble surrender. Worship is marked by humble surrender. Ministry, number two, ministry is marked by humble submission. And number three, leadership is marked by humble sacrifice. Worship is marked by humble surrender. Ministry is marked by humble submission. And leadership is marked by humble sacrifice. A few weeks ago, uh, Marcus began our series in, in 1 Timothy 1 where Paul urges Timothy uh, to charge certain persons uh, not to teach these different doctrines. So there's this group, there's this group within the community of the church, in, in, the, in this new church that's teaching a false gospel. They're, they're distorting the law, Paul says. They're getting, they're getting bogged down in all the wrong controversies, endless Controversies, he says. And Paul says they're they're really speculating about what God said rather than stewarding the word that God has given. And Paul reminds Timothy that, that his aim should be love and truth. That's what he's pointing us to. Paul reminds Timothy that that your ministry, your preaching, your care for these people should be marked by love and marked by truth. And both of these are required. Love love without truth is deception. And and truth without love is often abuse. Abuse. And Paul says, "These things need to be brought together in the ministry of the gospel, in and among these people, truth and love." And so you see that, how, how Paul is encouraging is encouraging Timothy there in those first few verses, to be gentle, but to wage the good war." You see the tension there? right? That's the, that's the work of gospel ministry. You're being gentle there with the people and you are waging this good war as a soldier for Christ. You are on mission. You've been given orders, as it were. And, and as Marcus noted, I think very hopefully that there are these two emblems um, of love and truth that are on um, God's family crest. They mark us as his people. And this is exactly what we get as we continue on in 1 Timothy 2. And and here in chapter 2, Paul adds a third emblem on the crest. So we have love, we have truth. And then here in 1 Timothy 2, Paul adds with it humility. Humility. And he shows us what it looks like in worship, in ministry, and in leadership. So here's number one. Worship is marked by humble surrender. He, he, he's calling us there in 1 Timothy 2. He says, first of all, I urge you then um, that, that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. And then he goes down in, in verse 8. I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So he's giving, giving us instruction about wor- how worship should look like, how worship should feel like, how, how we should be in worship together with God's people. That men should pray lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, women also should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Not just with braided hair and gold and pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness For Adorning themselves in good works. Paul specifically addressing how we ought to act in God's household. In in, in the church, specifically. We are are God's family. This is God's house. And God has house rules, as it were, for how his people should behave. Men are to pray. Men are to worship with humility. Men, we're to leave our anger at the door when we come in here. We're coming in here with with humility. Women are are to pray and to worship with humility and with modesty. Not just with conspicuous conspicuous clothing or ornamentation. Paul Paul is doing something here. He is connecting our outward appearance, our behavior, our demeanor with the internal state of our hearts. With what we're really trying to do when we gather together. He's making this connection here. Do, do men always have to pray with lifted hands? Of course they don't. Of course they don't. Paul, Paul will say elsewhere that, that, that we should be people who are praying at all times, right? So he's not just assuming that we're always praying with, with literal lifted hands. But, but when we pray, when we worship, we are praying from a spirit of humility, a spirit of, of of giving up ourselves, He says, don't let your don't let your political agitation, don't let your your personal annoyances or your your individual preferences hinder your worship. Don't bring that in here. It's not about you. It's about God. We are, we are We are receptive when we come here. We are open-handed. When we come here, we are ready to be given something from the Lord's word and from the Lord's table. It's not about all of our stuff, all of our angst. It's not even about all of our searching. It's not all about our obedience. It's not about our faithfulness. It's about something else. All together, when Paul's talking about hands lifted in this, in this posture of prayer and humility, it's, 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 a, it's a posture of surrender. It's a posture of, of giving up. He's saying, I, I, I am, when I am coming here, when I'm living this life of worship, I am giving up. I am all of yours. I'm not holding tightly to all these things that I think define me. I am letting go of those things receptively to receive from you and to be transformed. Paul says, when you worship, lift up your hands and surrender. You are giving yourself up. And then he makes the same kind of analogy with the ladies in the room. Does, does, does he mean that, that women cannot ever wear braided hair or nice clothes? I don't think so. Most commentators would say that's not what Paul's getting at. But he is saying, ladies, be careful where you focus your attention when you're here and gathering among the body. Where is your focus? Where are you drawing other people's focus? Surrender, as it were, your desire to be the focus. When you gather in a group of people, when you are gathering here to worship, just like the men, you are coming in surrender in saying, I am all yours. This is not about me This is about you. And whether we like it or not, that that internal state of our hearts does flow through how we behave and how we act. And our demeanor, our appearance even, can reflect in who we are and what we're coming for. Worship is marked by humble surrender. Here's number two. Ministry is marked by humble submission. Ministry is marked by humble submission. Paul says here uh, in, in verses 11 and 12, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain silent. Paul turns his attention from prayer and worship uh, to ministry and leadership and, and, he, and he speaks first to the women. He'll, he'll get to the men and we're, we're getting there, especially next week. And here he's speaking in these few verses to the ladies. In, in chapter 3, we'll, Paul will outline the, the qualifications for, uh, for the men, specifically the men who are, who, who are wanting to serve in the office of elder. And, and and they too, these men, are called to submission. They are called to submit to God. They are called to submit to God's uh, requirements of the office, the requirements of leadership in the church and leadership in the home. All of us are called to this life of submission. And so what is Paul actually saying here in these couple of verses? What does Paul mean when he says that women are to learn quietly or to remain quiet in the church? And I'm sure even if we were to... to to poll many of us in this room, we would all have very different opinions. And that's okay. We're gonna do our best here with the text. He's used this same language already before in this passage, this, this language of being quiet, this language of quietness and silence. He's used it there uh, in, in chapter 2 where he says, I, I'm praying so that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. So he's, he's, talking about, he's talking about all of us, men and women, the people of God. He's saying, I'm, I want them to live a life that is, that is quiet quiet. And peaceful and dignified in every way he says this is good, this is pleasing in the sight of God this is how we 're to act with one another when we're uh, in the family of God. Paul desires that all of us that we all men and women together live these quiet lives. what he is highlighting here specifically is a is a demeanor for the women to be ready to learn with to, to, to be ready to learn and receive from the leadership of the church. John Piper will, will comment on this passage, and, and he's done an extensive writing and, and thinking along these lines on this passage. He says, this doesn't refer to absolute silence, which some uh, interpret it as. Some, some women read this passage and think that it means, I can, I can never have a voice in the church or a voice in, meter, uh, in leadership or in ministry or any place in leadership or ministry among the people of God. But that's not what he's saying here. It doesn't refer to absolute silence. A, a quiet and peaceable life is not a life of total silence. It's a life untroubled and serene and content. It's a receptive life. It's, a kind of, it's the kind of quietness that respects and honors the leadership that God has called to oversee the church. Quietness means not speaking in a way that compromises the authority of the church, as was especially typical in Ephesus. And Marcus talked a little bit about the cultural kind of situation that Timothy was in there in Ephesus. I know this, I know this word submission makes many of us in this room just cringe I know for many of us, this term, and I know for many of us, this term, is cringe-worthy because it has been so abused and misapplied in so many different arenas in our life. It's it's really, it's really sad. Many men have have used this this language or this line of thinking, or, or maybe even tragically, a verse like this, to to lord over or to exert their their power over women or to abuse. Even and especially within the church. That's a terrible thing. It's actually the exact opposite of what God is getting at, I think, in this passage. I remember, in fact, Casey, I think this was you telling me the story that, um, that, that they were building a website uh, for someone. And, you know, when you fill out a form on a website and then that bottom button says, you know, submit, you know, when you're submitting the form. Well, when they built this website out, they, they started getting calls and complaints from people. That they wanted to change that language because it was offensive. There's something even about that word, right, that we react against that feels so wrong to us. I think a lot of that is our own sin. I think a lot of that is our own own desire to be sovereign and not to submit to anything. And so we reject anything that speaks into or shapes our lives or how we think about ourselves or how we think about others. And especially how we think about submitting to a sovereign God who has told us how we ought to behave. Our, our culture has distorted that word. Many in our culture have distorted that word to mean some kind of absolute obedience. Some men think this means that, that their, their wives or that women in general ought to do whatever they say. And that's what they think submission means. And as a result, this word loses its true meaning. And what, and what God intended what God intended as a means for blessing the relationship, especially between uh, between men and women, but especially between husbands and wives, the enemy has used to curse our relationships. And it's resulted, It's it's allowed men to either serve as bullies and that they use this language of submission to demand compliance from their spouse, or it's resulted in a kind of Cowardice among men and that they refuse to exert any kind of leadership at all. And so the temptation is there that we really miss it on both fronts as opposed to a, a committed driven leadership with a vision to lay down our lives for the women in our lives, especially our spouses and how that functions within the leadership of the church, this sacrificial leadership of the church. We'll get to that. Before we get into this passage specifically, let me say just a few words about what submission is not. What submission is not. Mary Cassian, who was a professor of women's studies at Southern Seminary in Kentucky, she, she, she actually had a blog um, that I, I first saw this on her blog, and her blog was titled Girls Gone Wise. Girls gone. Be careful what you Google there. Girls gone <laughs> wise. Um, she later turned that into a book. And, and she wrote there in these posts, um, what submission is not. And, and she wrote, submission is not universal. Submission is not universal. This is a unique principle for Christians who've been given the power of the Holy Spirit that enables this kind of obedience among husbands and wives. This is a spiritual issue. She says, number two, submission is not gender exclusive, meaning that, that, that men and women together are called to submit to the Lord. We are all called to live these lives of submission to one another. Even as Paul says, even in Ephesians, where this is such a hot topic issue, he calls us in, in Ephesians 5.21, that we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. She says, submission is also not generic. Women are not called to submit to men in general. But wives specifically are called to submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord. It's not that, it's not that you're trusting your husbands. It's that you're trusting the Lord. You're trusting him and the Lord's, leadership, the Lord's leadership and his guidance and his sovereignty. This is an important point too, she says number four. Submission is not a right. So submission is the wife's responsibility, not the husband's Right. You guys see that there? Men? Do you see that there? This is this is the word that Paul was giving to the women, not to the men they are called to submit to their own husbands as unto the Lord. She says that submission is not indiscriminate, meaning that submission is not, is not all-inclusive. A, a wife is first called to submit to her own husband, to, to, the, Lord's, to the Lord. Before, before she submits to her husband, she is submitting to the Lord's standard of righteousness, to, um, never to sin or never submitting to abuse or the mistreatment of a man. That's not what the Lord is calling us to. Submission should never create a lopsided or one-way kind of relationship. Wives must be transparent to speak the truth to their husbands, to confront their husband's sin, to speak the truth, to to challenge their husbands to lives of ever-increasing holiness. And of course, submission should never produce any kind of abuse or manipulation Scripture says in Genesis 1.27, so God created this is how the whole story begins. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So are are men and women equal? Yes. Of course they are. They are equal in essence, in dignity, in value. They are, they are, we each, both of us, are created in the image of God, equal. And yet, and yet uniquely, both of us together, uniquely, reflect God's glory to the world. Reflecting His image to the world. Yes, men and women are equal, but they are not identical. And they are not interchangeable. Here in 1 Timothy 2, Paul is encouraging women. First of all, this is important to note too, when you understand the kind of first century history that Paul is writing to. Paul is saying, I am encouraging the women to learn. That that on its own is is completely counter-cultural to the situation in life that Paul and Timothy are dealing with there in the first century in Ephesus. He's calling them to this, this, this radical inclusion into the body of Christ. And to learn in a way that is open and receptive to the leadership of the church. So what about, what about verse 12? Are, are women ever permitted to teach in the church? Yes, of course they are. You, you see it throughout the scriptures. You see it, I, I mean, just a few verses. You see it uh, in, in uh, Titus and, and one of the other pastoral epistles in, in Titus 2, where Paul's uh, specifically encouraging the older women to be teaching and training the younger women in the community. Even even in, this, even in, in 2 Timothy, in these letters that he's writing uh, to Timothy himself, he's, he's reminding him of the important role, the, the instructive role that his mother and grandmother had in his life to shape him as a pastor, to teach him. And shape him as the man of God he's become. You see, for example, in Acts, uh, where, where Priscilla and Aquila, that's a, that's a wife and a husband, they, they both together uh, approach Apollos and teach him. It says in Acts 18, they took him aside and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And, and almost always throughout Scripture, as that couple is mentioned, almost always the wife is mentioned before the husband in her leadership role of, of being in ministry arm-in-arm arm with her spouse. You see Phoebe in Romans, for example, was mentioned as a deacon. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. You see so many instances of women engaged in ministry, even, even, even with Paul, who is often, by some moderns, accused of, of a real chauvinism. But Paul was a champion of of women and of women serving in ministry in a way that reflects this unique design that he's called us each to. What about authority? You can see, for example, this woman in Proverbs 31, a very famous passage where this, this, this woman, this wife, this mother is, 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 is beautifully and extensively praised for her business savvy, her business acumen, her entrepreneurial skills and spirit, her ability to take risk, her skill in balancing home and family and ministry and business. Women are called to lead and called to serve. And so, then what is Paul forbidding here? What is Paul forbidding here? When Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. So he's kind of highlighting these two components, this teaching component, this authority component. He is referring, I think, to a specific kind of service within the church. The service of office of elder. The elders within the church. And he's gonna get, we're going to get to this. That The very next chapter, he's leading, he's building his argument for these overseers in the community. It's actually interesting as you read through the qualifications. He starts the first part of chapter 3 talking about the office of elder. And then he finishes chapter 3 with the office of deacon. And he's laying out qualifications for both of these offices within the church. The, the two things that really distinguish those two offices, the role of elder and deacon, are the two things that Paul is prohibiting here in 1 Timothy 2. This, this role of exercising authority over and the responsibility for teaching in. Those are the things that he's, he's holding back. Elders are the, the overseers, the pastors, deacons are the ones who are sort of getting, thing done, getting things done on the ground, literally someone who gets things done. And as Paul lays out those qualifications, he's making those distinguished, those, those distinguished marks between those two categories. You know, we, even as a even as a church community, we we fall into this unique place of, um, you, you know, it's you can be criticized for being too uh, liberal because we allow women to serve as deacons, but criticized for being too conservative because we don't allow women to serve as elders. And we're doing our best to read and reflect the text that Paul is saying here. I'm I'm giving you a way. For the church to function. And I think there's good reason for it. Our church believes that, that all men and all women should be encouraged to serve in ministry. To, to use their gifts to serve in and through the church. Now, not all of us will serve vocationally in ministry. But, but all of us should be bringing our gifts to bear in God's community. But that this office of elder, for some reason, is reserved for the men in some unique way. And this is a a complex kind of uh, understanding of, of what God is doing here. This isn't because, I think it's important to say, that men are more gifted than women. If you've ever met my wife, you just know that's not true, even just as a couple. Men are not better teachers than women. I don't think that's at all what Paul's getting at. They're not on a higher spiritual plane than women. The simple fact, we see this from the beginning pages of Scripture throughout all of the rest of the text, is this idea of of God creating a pattern that that reflects his glory and the kind of complex relationship that happens when one submits to another when both are equal and both are strong. And the idea here is that he has established this pattern of leadership within the church that reflects the leadership that he has established within the family. This one of headship and leadership and authority. This driving vision, but a driving vision that is marked by a laying down of life for the sake of the other, for the good of their spouse, for the good of the church, both submit, men and women, elders and non-elders, submit in unique ways that God has called them to serve within this particular body. The elders serve as sacrificial, sacrificial leaders to care for God's people, not lording it over them, but giving their lives and service to the community. For, for, for both men and women, ministry is marked by humble submission to God's design. That doesn't make it easy. That doesn't make it simple. That just means that we are, we are submitting ourselves to the way God has established this pattern in life to reflect his glory and his design in a powerful way. Here's number three. Leadership is marked by humble sacrifice the leadership is marked by humble sacrifice See, he, he starts there in, in verse 3 all of this is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth because there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man J- Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all you see how he, he's, he's, he's putting this right in the center of his argument, this picture of Christ. Jesus is not a mediator in the modern sense as one negotiating just a compromise between opposing parties. He, he, is, he is the only one who is able to um, create this relationship between God and his people. And it's a relationship on God's terms. Jesus is the one who, who fully submitted to the Father in Gethsemane, right? You, you see this picture of, of Jesus, you, you understand this, this image of submission, even within the Trinity, as you, look at, as you look at Father, Son, and Spirit, all three equally God, all three together, this one God existing perfectly in three persons, and you have the Son, Jesus, submitting himself to the Father, Giving himself over. You you see him praying there in Gethsemane in anguish. If there's another way, I'd love for there to be another way. But if there's no other way, I'm giving you all of myself. Submitting fully to you. The perfect, holy, complete God. Submitting to the perfect, holy, complete Father. It is a relationship of giving of sacrifice, of submission, and of life, and of joy, of mutual love, of mutual service. Before Paul discusses, and, and not only does he submit to the Father, don't you see? Not only does he submit to the Father in going to the cross and giving himself up, Paul's saying he was, he was, he was a ransom for all of us. He gave Himself for all, all, of, all of our brokenness and all of our mistakes and all of our sin, all of our apathy, all of our anger, all of our frustration, all of our disbelief, all of our, all of our trying to earn our way or trying to think we've deserved it or to think that we don't need what He's giving. Jesus Christ who gave Himself as a, who gave himself as a ransom for all. He's giving us this, this paradigm through which to see all the rest of life and service and ministry. He's saying, as it were, look, look to Christ. He is the lens through which we can understand all the rest of it. The ultimately powerful and sovereign one who gave himself to the Father And gave himself over for all of us. He is fixing our attention on the perfect man. The the perfect model for leadership. The perfect example. The perfect sacrifice. Even again in Ephesians 5, Paul's calling us, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. As a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to the Father. If you want to lead, lead like Christ. Give yourself up for another. Leadership is not putting your foot down. Do you understand? Leadership is not putting your foot down. Leadership is laying your life down. It's giving. I have been married, by God's grace, by my wife's patience, coming on 18 years. I've never had to put my foot down. I've never had to put my foot down. I've never had to demand my way. What a bad way to have a relationship with another human that's marked by love and giving and sacrifice and my wife lovingly submits to my leadership she follows me along all kinds of crazy steps she 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 trusts me but not because not because i'm trustworthy but because her eyes are fixed on her father she's trusting the lord in guiding our family and so together we are we are we are both submitting to god's design and giving ourselves up for the other it's not putting your foot down it's laying your life down the the gospel you see is the the gospel is the one thing that starts to make ultimate sense of our relationships of of our ministries of what leadership can actually look like it's the only thing that makes sense of our sexuality it's the only thing that makes sense of our uniqueness. And it's the only thing that makes sense of our, our shared call to submit to God's design. That he has made us together equal and unique to reflect his beautifully complex glory to the world. That's what we're doing in our marriage. That's what we're doing in a church. Reflecting. Our lives and, and and this is the, this is the like white-hot clarity that, it, that is so desperately needed in a culture that is marked, as we all know, by such insane confusion. The gospel is burning into that fog. It's like the sun coming out in that foggy morning to bring some clarity to all of this mess about how we are to work and serve and love one another. It's what our world needs. It's what we need. It's our call to bring it to bear. And so then, church, our, our, our lives should be marked by a worship that is, that is humble and one of giving up and surrender. Our ministry should be marked in the church by, by a humble submission to God's design. And our, our leadership should be defined not by our pride or our power, but by humble sacrifice. And, and, and church, that's my prayer. My, my prayer is that we would be a church known for our, our humility. That would be an emblem on our crest. And that this would look like a radical submission to God's call, to God's design, to God's will. in A a strong, joyful submission that that looks to God's righteousness, that looks to Jesus' leadership and and, and throws itself in under the Spirit's guidance. Giving ourselves fully to where he's taking us for, for our joy and for his glory. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. And God, we know that these are uh, hard words for us to hear, for all of us to submit to you and to your design and to your call in our lives. God, we need help. God, we need mercy. We need forgiveness. God, we need strength. We need that vision and courage to give ourselves up for the other. God, help us. Help us to trust you. Help us to trust your word. God, we know that these hard words uh, can make soft people. And we pray that we would be softened by this, tenderized by this powerful word. God, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.